The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. It's funny because you expect that, you know, as between men and women. Like, okay, in the, in the sexual marketplace, of course, it's better to be beautiful. I guess what I didn't realize until I got <laughs> until I got older and less beautiful, I didn't realize that how much it plays into everything else. It plays into so much at work. You get that sort of enfant terrible vibe if you're working late hours and you look fantastic. You also get it with other women. And a lot of the book is sort of concerned with that because you see a lot of the worry for these women is, you know, looking good for each other. Because if you slip, if they smell your weakness, you're not in the same peer group anymore. That was Kathy Cooperman, author of the new novel Crimes Against a Book Club. A very funny and exciting book. She's joining us today for a conversation about everything from women who can't afford to keep up their plastic surgery to her own transition from improv to lawyering to becoming an author. We also talk about books by George Orwell, Sarah Silverman, and much, much more. That's today on The History of Literature. go. Man, this is a fun one. Although, I should say this was recorded before everything went to hell in this country. I know what you're saying. When when, when would that have been? 2015? 1994? Was there ever a time? So, let's just say it was recorded before our latest fresh hell, as Dorothy Parker might have put it. So you hear us talking about problems in this country, but they're maybe not the problems most on your mind this week, and they're not the ones most on my mind, as we wrestle with the aftermath of Charlottesville and what it means even to live in this country. It's an existential problem, and the answers are not easy. I get that this podcast is an escape for most of you. You get your politics elsewhere, and I try to honor that. That's as it should be, because what do I know? I don't have any answers to anything. Not my specialty, but we're talking about literature here, and the only thing that I really care about when it comes to literature is life. If literature is not about life, then the hell with it. Now now I'm quoting Flannery O'Connor. Well, this is appropriate. This show, as you'll hear, has a lot of funny women in it, and Dorothy and Flannery fit right in. So, where was I? Oh, yes, literature and life. We need to understand who we are what we are, what we're doing, and are we doing what we can? What does it all mean? I'll have more to say about this. And you know, I'm actually, I'm going to announce it here. I'm trying to put together another podcast. Actually, we're still in the early stages, but I'd like to have a vehicle to address some other subjects, not just literature. And that way, I can try to keep this one more dedicated to literature. I think literature does need to comment on current events from time to time, but maybe we can also be a retreat from that, take a 20,000-foot view when that seems appropriate from a literary perspective, even if it doesn't always seem that way from a human perspective. Hang on, people. We'll get through this together. Our thoughts are all with the people in the tragedy in Charlottesville and in all the tragedies that occur, both the high-profile ones and the ones that occur at a lower level throughout the country. It's a constant problem, a constant boil that occasionally simmers over and scalds everyone. There's a lot of hate in this world, pointless hate, pointless violence, and it is awful. So, it's an odd way to introduce today's subject, which is the very funny Kathy Cooperman and her book. She's here for a discussion, but in some ways it's not so odd. Because although her book is lighthearted and funny, there's an undercurrent of seriousness to it. And to her, because she's a very intelligent person and a very sharp observer of class and status and the way those things permeate our world. I think we get at some of this in our discussion, but let me set the table, so to speak. Kathy is from the East Coast, Boston and New York, and she wound up in San Diego, where people are beautiful. But that's an easy stereotype, isn't it? I feel that way when I come. <laughs> when I travel from the East Coast and land in Los Angeles or 
San Diego, Orange County. I feel underdressed, underbaked, underbeautiful. But that's just the stereotype. Not everyone is what the world considers beautiful. And even among the beautiful, the people who become beautiful, not everyone is born to be beautiful. Sometimes you have to work at it. Sometimes people buy it in some ways. But sometimes working hard for it or buying it can backfire. So in the middle of this move for Kathy Cooperman and the culture shock of that, Kathy encountered a book club and a plot for a funny thriller jumped into her head and she ran with it. She ended up with this book set in this fascinating setting. It opens a door to something new, I think, to most of us. And her book raises questions of status and markers of status, privilege, and the effect of wealth on an individual and on that individual's personal relationships, wealth or the lack thereof. Our society is held together by the way people deal with one another. We forget sometimes how much of that is based on first impressions, whether that's due to race or gender or beauty or other signs of status. And not just first impressions, second and third, and, and well, not, not just those either. All impressions, outward appearance governs or influences almost all of it, all of our relationships. And most of us are not as vigilant as we should be in making sure that our interactions with people are pure, soul to soul, seeing people for who they are, and not just judging the face or the body that the soul happens to be encased in. Kathy and I talk about this a bit, and we talk about the effect that an image-conscious society has on the psyche. It can be very destructive to be on the other end of that kind of judgment of all those assumptions. I see this with parents of girls that I know how middle school girls can start talking about weight and appearance, and you hear the stories and you think, my God, it's no wonder people develop eating disorders. I had a wonderful friend, close friends of ours, with a daughter who was kind of being bullied by a neighbor girl. There's no other way to put it than being bullied. The girl, the neighbor girl was probably twice her size, much taller, bigger. And that girl would say to our friend's daughter, you're eating again? No wonder you're so fat. And it was so clear to me as a grown-up that the neighbor was projecting her insecurities onto our friend. She was concerned about her own weight, and her skinny friend made her feel bad. So she lashed out, and I felt sad for both of them. You can see how the seeds were there. The, the daughter of our friends just wasn't old enough. She didn't have the, the tools to see what I saw, which was that this wasn't really about her. It was about her friend. And it's not just young girls and weight. It's the aging process, too. It's viewing people's physical appearance as a character failing, as a moral failing. Very destructive. It tears people down. And it's not just in high schools, and it's not just among, I don't know, actresses and models. You see it in normal places, the workplace, the boardroom, the playground. It's there. It's insidious, and it often goes undetected, but it's there. I've been watching 30 Rock with my kids, and we were struck by how many of the jokes are about food. And I get it that Tina Fey was creating a character, Liz Lemon, and there was comedy potential of someone who can't stop eating and someone who loves cheese and has a lot of GI issues, so on, pajamas with cupcakes on them. I get it. I get that it's comedy. I get that it's, it's exploring that side of things. It's exposing it for what it is. Frankly, I find it to be a little obsessive on that show. It becomes unfunny, kind of like Garfield. You can't stop eating lasagna. The joke, if you hit it over and over and over, it becomes less and less funny. We also watched Parks and Rec, a show that we loved, and Amy Poehler's character, Leslie Nope, loved waffles. But it, it was one little quirkiness in her overall persona. Her overall persona was one of being an overachiever, being obsessed with detail, a person who stays up all night completing a report, 
The waffles was just one element. With Tina Fey's Liz Lemon, it dominates. And it comes across as less funny, sad, at least to me. So this could be because we're binge watching, no pun intended. And I really mean no pun intended. Not the no pun intended that people say when they really mean to point out that they just made a pun. I mean that binge watching the show may have affected the way that I see the humor here. It's not just four or five jokes a week with a week in between. We might watch four episodes in a row and there might be 20 food jokes or fat jokes in two hours. That's a lot. And some episodes might have even more food jokes, even more than five in one 20-minute episode. It's Garfield territory, people. And so I did a little digging, and I learned that Tina Fey had a lot of issues with this. She herself identified as not being conventionally beautiful and believed that it was only when she lost weight that people wanted to see her as a performer and not just as a writer. So she's probably a little under her natural weight, which probably means she's dieting and exercising and hungry, which tends to put food and food issues on your mind. And she had this experience, too. She wanted to cast Rachel Dratch, her old friend and colleague, as the other female lead. And the networks rejected her because she wasn't beautiful enough. That had to hurt Tina Fey, too. Here she was, creative, accomplished, setting up her own show. And the network steps in and says, No, your idea for one of the central characters, a woman you've known forever as one of the funniest people you know and who you've worked with, can't happen. Can't do it. Oh, you cast her already? Well, uncast her. If I were Tina Fey, I'd be thinking, well, great. Here I am, head writer of Saturday Night Live. I'm the expert in comedy around here, right? You're not. You're not the creative people. I'm supposed to make this show funny. And the jobs of all these people and my reputation, is it's all hinging on how funny I can make this show. And you're telling me that I can't cast the funny person I know in the funny part? Luckily, that part worked out. Jenna is played by Jane Krakowski, who's hilarious. It's good for the show. But who knows how funny Rachel Dratch might have been. She's funny. She, she's, she's very funny. Might have made the show better. In any case, the message sent to Tina Fey seems clear. Mm, not a meritocracy. Looks are going to play a big part of it here in the entertainment world. So anyway, as I was digging into this, I found this other amazing clip. It's from Saturday Night Live when Tina Fey and Amy Poehler are at the news desk. And Lindsay Lohan comes on, and Tina Fey comments about her arms looking too thin and sort of does a kind of intervention right on the air, live on television. It's brief, but it's, it's really something. I found it very moving. Tina Fey and Amy Poehler had been the adults in the movie Mean Girls, Tina Fey's movie, which Tina Fey had written. And Lindsay Lohan played the lead, and it seems as if on this clip, Tina and Amy had a kind of big sister or young aunt concerned for Lindsay, whose life in the wake of success was spiraling out of control. And Lindsay later did talk about her drug use and all of her self-destructive behavior and her eating disorder. That was true. It was right there. And apparently, Amy Poehler had said to her, I'm not going to ask why, but you're too skinny and you're going to die if you don't take care of yourself. And we love you too much to see that happen. And that's Amy Poehler, who came through show business, the crucible of show business. And it's easy to talk about actors and models and people whose persona involves being photographed up close. But what about the others? What about all those people who don't have an Amy Poehler in their life to help them out? Our whole culture frames everything around appearance. It's all pervasive. And if you're wealthy... You don't need to just live with it, right? That's an interesting phenomenon. What do people do with that wealth when appearance is so important? What do they spend their money on? Do they live with themselves naturally? Or do they make other decisions? Kathy and I get into all of that. But don't worry. There's a lot of fun stuff too. And you can hear how Kathy's choices make sense for the kind of book that she wrote. Authors always crack me up when they choose these books. These books that they've loved 
they never think their choices really relate to the book that they wrote, it seems. But to me, the through line always seems clear. It It always seems like people show what they care about and by choosing the books and then what they care about often makes it into their own book. You can see the themes. You can see the patterns. Okay. So that's a long introduction. I'll need to, let's skip the emails that I was planning to read. Let's save those for next time. Let's get straight to my conversation with Kathy Cooperman. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the cat in the hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is an old friend of mine and the author of the new book, Crimes Against a Book Club, Kathy Cooperman. Welcome to the History of Literature podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jack. So, we have a new novel. It's a very funny book. I'm partway through. I think it's, I'd call it a perfect summer read, and it just came out, Not, I guess it was a few weeks ago. How's the response been so far? It's been terrific. I've been really pleased. It, you know, like I've had um, people... All ages come up, even even teenagers, which I didn't expect. Has there been any backlash from book clubs? No, no. <laughs> it's funny because I went to a book club just the other night, and it was in Cardiff, which is just outside of Del Mar. Uh huh. They wanted to know, like, have the La Jolla ladies come after you? <laughs> <Yeah>. Well, <laughs> I have to say, the book club. <laughs> it's a, no, no, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> the book club. It is done with affection, I would say, but it it does have some undesirable features. It does, it does, but yeah, throughout the book, like, they become more and more human. I mean, the, right. the theory behind the book is it's very easy to see a person as a caricature, and then once you get to know them, it, it just sort of fades back pretty fast. Right. But no, I haven't had any, I'm go- that said, I'm going to a, a La Jolla book club tomorrow night, and, um, you know, I'm, I'm great, I'm ready, <laughs> I'm a little nervous. Now, La Jolla, how would you describe La Jolla for people who aren't that familiar with the San Diego area? Well... La Jolla is, it's bizarre because it's, it's beautiful. Like, it's just breathtakingly mm. beautiful. It's not just mm-hmm. on a beach or something. It's not like Malibu. Mm-hmm. It's this gorgeous rocky cove with seals and sea lions frolicking mm. and all this. I mean, it's just gorgeous. It looks almost like the Aegean Sea. It's that mm-hmm. sort of rocky, gorgeous, right up against the water. Right. And then you go walking around, and it's just surreal. The money walking around is just... yeah so in your face. I mean, you walk around in this like Lamborghinis and Ferraris. It's, it's just crazy. I, and I've been around a lot of wealth. I'm from Boston and New York, and there's plenty of money there, too. It's just I've never had it sort of flashed so right. openly. Right. And so totally unapologetically. It reminds me kind of a, of Trump. I mean, just sort of, you know, yeah, I got money. Let me show you. Right. <laughs> right. <of thing. laughs> in La Jolla, a millionaire is average and billionaires are those are the rich people. Right. McCain has a house there. Romney has a house there. Oh, is that the house that we've heard about during the during the campaign where it, yes. it has elevators for in his garage? Yes. Right. Yes, absolutely. It was just a level of money and a flamboyance and comfort with wealth that I've never been close to before. Right. And I was sort of gobsmacked by it. I'd always been around people who 
if they were wealthy, they sort of hid it or mm -hmm. felt mildly embarrassed about it or just reticent. No, not embarrassed. I mean, I've definitely met people who were quite comfortable with the wealth that they have, you know, yeah. comfortable with their comfort. But this was, I mean, this was just different. And it's just different. And the way that people carry themselves and the culture was very different than, than it is here. Than it is like on the East here. I say this, I'm sitting in California. Um, but then it is on the East Coast. And that yeah. was kind of a shock to me at first. And and not all in a bad way, just different. Right. Now, I might expect a group like that to have a wine tasting club or maybe a, a group of massage friends or spa going friends or something, but exercise, yoga, but a book club. So are they, is this a, a, a common social activity to to do a book club just as oh, it yeah. would be in... Yeah, no, I mean, they're not, they're not savages. We're not just, like, you know, throwing rocks <laughs> at fires or something like that. <laughs> yeah, they have book clubs. And, you know, to be, to be fair, you know, if you're avoiding carbs like crazy, you, you know, and in your own paleo, you don't go to a wine tasting. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, right. You know, that's, that's really a big splurge. Reading books um, is a low calorie activity. It is. It's a low-calorie activity. It's perceived, I think, by pretty much everyone in the country as being a virtuous activity. Yeah. Um, something that, you know, and there is an idea of broadening your horizons, I guess. Right. But, you know, invariably, at least that particular book club that I went to, I went to a book club in La Jolla, and most of the, time the book was really a footnote right. to the sort of discussions about other stuff. Now, that said, the, the people I dealt with in my book club, you didn't have that level of drama at all. That is obviously manufactured for the book, but I I have found that I've been in several book clubs since then. There's always some sort of tensions. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, There's yeah. A lot going on in those book clubs, right? So, and sometimes, yeah. and, and I think they mean a lot to people. The the books do, or the clubs do. Um, the clubs, the books yeah. and the clubs. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, and you probably get people. I think it was pretty early in in your book where. You know, some people just haven't read the book and different people are going to take individual books seriously at a different level or they'll have different opinions about books. And you could see where something that, that could be designed as kind of a social gathering would turn into something much more contentious. Yeah, it can. It can. Often books, I think, can become like a springboard for, let's put it this way, the people I've talked to about my book, I've been astonished. Cause I, you know, I went to, when I went to my first book club to talk about my book, I was so nervous. I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to go in and what do I say? And what, what do I think? And I walked in, I didn't have to say anything. Because <laughs> literally, they all felt like they knew me. They were like, you know, oh, wow, we've yeah. been listening to her whispering in our heads for like 200 pages. Right. And then they wanted to tell me their private stuff. And I was just like, not ready for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I was sort of bored. But also like in a really wonderful way like it's yeah. wonderful to see what people took from it and what they did with it in their heads and yeah it was, it was sort of beautiful it's sort of ideally what what you want when you write a book so oh. it touched off a lot of different things for different people i just find with book clubs there tends to be a history you uh. meet with a group of people <laughs> once a month for any serious period of time and right. there's like there's baggage there and, and i love it i think it's great yeah now i do want to back up a little bit and talk about sure. your background doing improv comedy, which you yes. talk about in the, I guess, in the author notes. So you did that for four years. Yeah, I did. I did a, um, at University of Chicago, I did um, improv comedy. I, I was with a group called Off Off Campus at University of Chicago, and we performed twice a week. And we rehearsed a ton. I mean, it was a huge time suck. It's amazing. I did all right in college, but... Um, and Chicago, I mean, for people, people I think are familiar with Second City, but they maybe don't know the yeah. University of Chicago has a real lineage of improv and, and Second City had kind of grown out of there in some ways. And, and when we were there, some of the people were still around. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, Bernie, Bernie Sullins, he's since died. He was, he was there. And, um, but I didn't interact with him much. I mean, he sort of had, had laid the groundwork for the club I was in. Mm -hmm. um, and then he had. You know, he went off to bigger and better things. But yeah, there were there were a bunch of people there who were doing really well and who went on to do amazing things. And you know, Dave Auburn came out of there and he later wrote Proof. Oh, yeah. uh, Tammy Sager went out of there and she became a comedy writer and she's on it. You know, she works for Amy Schumer and mm. she did um, also. Uh, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm blanking on this. Uh, she did Tina Fey's show. Oh, uh, Thirty Rock. Thirty Rock. Yes, mm. and she won. She. You know, she she went to the Emmys for that, and she's done all this amazing work. So, yeah, I mean, people from there have gone on to do 
a lot of really amazing things. Wow. The one thing that's great about improv is there's a huge emphasis on writing in improv because, I mean, when you're doing improv, you're not just doing skits. I mean, you do some skits, we're part of our show, but the, the improv itself, it's just created right there in front of the audience. Yeah. And so everybody who does it, you're writing. You're writing in your head. Right. Um, in order to come up with stuff. You don't have a script there to fall back on. And I think it's a great place for a writer to sort of work and see, and see what works and see what doesn't work in a scene. Yeah, and really hone those those quick instincts. So how did you know this was something you wanted to do? Had you done anything like it? Had you been acting or in, in any other kind of performing arts before you came to college? No, good Lord, no. No, I'd done, um, when I was in high school, I did debate. Oh, uh-huh. It was very serious. I was yeah. very, very serious. <laughs> I think were serious. And then I got to University of Chicago and Honestly, to do debate at University of Chicago, it's such a nerdy place. Like, yeah, debate right. is sort of redundant. I mean, you're doing that all over the time. Like, all over the place. Like, right, right. It's like turning on the heat in hell. Yeah, exactly. And I saw <laughs> I saw the comedy group, and I just thought, that looks like a blast. And so I auditioned, and I was lucky enough to get in. And it was, it was fun. It, it really was a nice counterbalance to a very in, intense academic program. So it was good. And your family, is your family in entertainment at all or or yeah no my um my father ran a nightclub in new york oh okay yeah um and my brother is a stand-up comedian Uh his name is dave cooperman go check him out at dave cooperman on um he's got he's got a youtube channel that's that's really terrific he's terrific i mean he's very very funny were you drawn to stand up at all did you ever give it a try oh um no, <laughs> I mean, I don't think I could do it. I, 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 um, I've watched tons of stand-up and I admire stand-ups tremendously. Yeah. Like the ones who are, I mean, there's a lot of terrible stand-ups, but there's some stand-ups who I, I would put them up with being just terrific writers. I mean, they're amazing. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't appeal to me because you, you realistically to be a successful stand-up, you, in addition to just the creating the, uh, the material, crafting the material, performing the material, you have to spend a huge amount of time in comedy clubs. You have to really uh, haunt right. those places, especially early on. You have to wait for your time to get on. I mean, every yeah. single comedian you see who has like a a special on Netflix, they really pay their dues. And yeah. they, they had to hang out in those clubs. They had to accept basically nothing for pay at, at the beginning. Um, they have to be willing to tour all over the country. And, you know, they have to be comfortable around like a lot of bars. And I'm, I'm not. I, I'm, I'm not. So... I just, it's just not my, my space. I think in a way I'm like a little bit too fragile for that. I mean, what's nice Mm. about writing a book is you you write it and you just shine it and you just sort of like, you know, work on it and hone it and and get perfect and everything like that. And you don't have like drunk people yelling at you. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) That's not part of it. (laughs) Uh, I think I'm too sensitive. I think I'd be like, oh no, I don't like it. You know, I, I I I don't know if I can handle that. Those people have nerves of steel. But was part of you, did you kind of miss the collaborative effort? I, I would think that someone in uh, who spent time in improv, when you sit down to write a novel, you might think, oh boy, this would be really fun if I had someone to play off of when I'm doing the scene or coming up with these ideas. Oh yeah, of course. I mean, the closest I came to with that was I, I showed it to various people and, and mm. they I was very open to having stuff gutted. Right. You know, I'd, I'd show it to people and see what they thought, and, and that's as close as it could come to making a collaborative. But, yeah, I mean, there's an element of just, you know, you feel like a little golem going into your cave. <laughs> My flesh is the flesh. You know, <laughs> you just do that for a while. Right. And in your cave or just outside your cave, you have four kids. Yes. What kind of challenge did that present? Oh, writing the book didn't take that long. Publishing it took forever, but writing uh-huh. it didn't take that long. I wrote the book when I was pregnant with my fourth kid. Uh-huh. Um, I would drop my third kid off at preschool, and then I'd go sit in a cafe and just write. It was strange with this book, and I don't, I don't think this will be true of every book for me, but, you know, ho- hopefully there'll be more. But, you know, this book, the idea sort of came into my head one afternoon. I remember I was in the park, and we were joking about, someone needs to write a book about La Jolla, and I just came up with a plot. Like right there, and he said, "How about this? How about that? How about that?" <laughs> my friend was like, "Well, you should write that." And so it was nice. I sort of had the outline in my head. Since I'd worked as a prosecutor, I had some idea of the trajectory of a crime, like how. Right. I I don't know. At least with white collar criminals, I feel like there's a sense of I need this money. Now sometimes that's truer than not, but sometimes 
uh, I'm sorry, I'm going off into the woods of, you know, how I came to write the book to begin with, and that's a different subject. But yeah, no, I miss the collaboration. Well, I, as you were starting to talk about it, I think that is interesting, but I realized we jumped over a whole huge part of your trajectory here, which is from improv, you ended up not long after college going to law school and working as a prosecutor, and that was sort of a whole different profession and career that you had. I knew enough when I did improv to know, you know, this is not what, this is not where I fit for the rest of my life. I mean, mm-hmm. the people I, I knew who needed to be on stage, the, the people who went forward with that career, like you have to need it. You have to really want it because there's people who that's just, they've got that fire in the belly. That's what they want. I didn't. At that point, I came off of college and I had loans to pay and, you know, my family had had financial problems and so, you know, I, I was like, I'm going to get a respectable job. Right. I went to law school. I went to work at a law firm. And I thought that's sort of where my track is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think, I don't think that was a wrong plan. I think that just I, something shifted in me mm-hmm. while I was there. Right. And then you worked, was it for a district attorney for a while? Um, I worked for the attorney general's office in Massachusetts. I was doing computer crime stuff. So I was prosecuting people who were treating, you know, oh gosh, it was awful. People who were collecting kitty porn. And um, and then there were people who were embezzlers. And there was you know, an assortment of people who were defrauding immigrants. So those were... Yeah, those are real bad guys. So that experience gave you enough to see kind of how a case is put together and kind of the the contours of an investigation or or a crime. Yeah, no, although actually for for the book, for this book, I didn't rely so much on my experience as a prosecutor. I relied more on my experience when I went to work for law firms. I worked for law firms for, (laughs) oh gosh, five or seven years. I think it's embarrassing that I don't have that time limit like right off the top of my head. But anyway, (laughs) it's all a blur. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but I was doing white collar criminal stuff. So I went to Kramer 11, which was a, a firm in New York that yep. specialized in white collar criminal stuff. And I was working on the other side. I was, I was defending people who had been accused of like securities fraud, you know, things like that. I got a sense of how criminal cases are built. Right. And, and more importantly, for purposes of this book, of how people who consider themselves law-abiding right. sort of veer off. <laughs> right, right, and how they look back on it afterwards and uh, still have a good explanation for it, even yeah. as it kind of falls yeah. apart. Yes, exactly. Uh, okay, I asked you to choose some, some books and some authors and maybe some films and television shows, things that had influenced you. I knew you had a... A very eclectic background, and I was expecting to get some eclectic choices, and I think we did. So why don't we jump into those so we can talk a little bit about the history of literature here? Sure. One of the books you chose is a favorite of mine, uh, George Orwell, Down and Out in Paris in London. And I'm wondering, where did you first encounter that book? I think it was right after college. Mm-hmm. I, I majored in college in history, so I got used to reading terrible writers because I, I studied Middle Eastern history and the writers yeah. in that field were not that great. Uh-huh. And so afterwards, I started binge reading literature and I found Orwell and I just read everything I could find. I mean, I just read all the, mainly his novels. I, uh-huh. I fell in love with his novels. But then when I found stuff like The Road to Wigan Pier and Down and Out in Paris and London, mm-hmm. I just loved it. And it's crazy, but I found myself with the um, Down and Out in Paris and London, you know, that's just for whoever might be listening who doesn't know the plot of that. He was, you know, obviously not working class, but he was fascinated with the working classes. So he went to, he was in London. I forget what his job was in London. He was. Was he a dishwasher there? In Paris, he worked as a plongeur, so it's sort of a glorified dishwasher and uh, right. all around cleaner. And then in London, I think he had a job. I, I forget. He was just it was just total destitution. But mm. he was really concerned with both just the nitty gritty details of privation, but then also sort of efforts to hide privation, mm. like just a sort of instinctive effort to seem like you're doing better than you are. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was fascinating. Yeah. How much effort and sweat goes into just trying to keep up appearances for everybody. And he wrote another great book called Keep the Espedistra Flying about trying to appear middle class when you are not middle class. Right. I, I just love the way he wrote about that. Yeah. Sort of the yearning behind that. Those books are amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a lot of it probably comes from his, his background. I mean, I know he was a, a sort of poor kid who who got into public, they call it public schools, we call it private schools, but... 
um, right. got into public schools on scholarship. And he, I think he was very, always very aware of, of class and yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he was also just so clear-eyed in general. I mean, he he's somebody who he almost forced himself to observe things correctly and to write about them accurately. And I don't know, almost monkish in terms of language. Yeah. And you know, and I think that really served him well when he was in kind of delineating some things that we might just look at the the superficial aspects of it and make easy assumptions, but he was very penetrating in, in looking beneath that. Yeah, and also what I love about him, which you, which I, I don't know, I guess you wouldn't know from like 1984, but he, he had a wonderful sense of humor. Yeah. And he had just a wonderful sense of humor in these other books where he's so good at telling on himself, but telling on himself in a very interesting super readable way. Like right. you always feel like, wow, I'm going to go read some punishing expose on how lousy it is to be in Paris as a plongeur. Instead it was, wow, I'm going to join him on this adventure. I can't believe that happened to him. Wow. Look at yeah. that. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. It was, it wasn't some sort of grim anthropological paper. Right. <laughs> right. He's very humble and modest and he'll talk about being afraid or not knowing things and looking yeah. foolish and trying to, you know, trying to keep up with the people around him who already kind of have their own world all figured out. Yeah. He's just a joy to read. I, I love that about him. And I love I love what he has to say about status and how status shifts and the desperate things people will do to sort of keep their status. Yeah, and then underneath it, he's got real need. I mean, he's just talking about you know hunger and, and not being able to meet your basic daily needs. And so it was interesting to realize, keep the expedition flying. I felt like he really focused on how um, middle class people, how people try to preserve the implication that they're in the middle class. And then in down at, out in Paris and London, he made it very clear that how incredibly poor people are also keeping up appearances. They might not be succeeding, but there's so much sweat and effort behind that, and it was just really sort of moving to read about. Did you view him at all as an inspiration as you were putting together your novel? Where, I mean, it, it's a very different. Oh type no. Of... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm not asking you to compare yourself with George Orwell, but as you're putting together a novel like that, you had to kind of be discerning about differences in in class and relationships among people with different uh, levels of income and that kind of thing. But it sounds like Orwell was was not uh, something you were reading to. No, no. I mean, I, Orwell, I think he's sort of in my DNA because I'm very interested in class issues. Um, right. You know, I'm not I'm, I don't want to, you know, I, I'm not like I don't want to pass myself as like I'm Bernie Sanders and drag. It's just sort of I'm, I'm interested in class issues. I'm interested <laughs> in status differences. And I, I tend to like writers who write about that. There was a great short story by Edith Wharton where she talks about, I think it's called Roman Fever, mm, and there's mm -hmm. just a beautiful shift in status between the two women who are talking on a terrace, and it comes out that one of them is, that all along you're thinking one woman is just so far above the other, and then she beautifully shifts it all around at the end. Mm -hmm. And that's just compelling. I mean, it's just compelling to see how people do that to each other. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely have an interest in that. Um, and I guess I've always had like a little just running around in the back of my head. Hey, that's not fair. You've got more than me. <laughs> Let's move on to your next one, which is Sarah Silverman, The Bedwetter. Now, this is another... Yeah. <laughs> this is another one. So I would imagine most people are familiar with Sarah Silverman. She's very funny. She's hilarious. She's very... I mean, she makes a lot... Look, she, she, she's the first to admit, you know, a huge chunk of her material is dick jokes and fart jokes and stuff like that. Yeah. And that's all funny. Like, I can still laugh at all that stuff. But I also like, she is also a person who's very good at sort of telling on herself and her baser instincts, and I enjoyed that. So I already knew coming to that book that she was very funny. Like, yeah. I was expecting, oh, it's going to be a comedian writing sort of a, yep. here's me riffing and being yeah. wacky, that kind of uh, thing. Like sign language. Yeah. I mean, what, what surprised me about the book was how generous she was. Mm-hmm how hyper-aware she was at each phase of her life of how much she had give, been given by other people and how ready she was to give credit to people for, for that. I, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, comedians, there's, there's a lot of very intense friendships among comedians that, that I've seen, mm -hmm. but um, I don't always see someone being that effusively sort of 
you know, I mean, she'd just talk glowingly about people and specifically. She would make you understand exactly what they meant to her. She'd make it clear that at each point, you're sort of a creation of the people you come from. And I admired that. I didn't, I didn't expect that level of profundity in her right. book. Not because I didn't think she'd be capable of it, but just because I didn't think she'd focus on that. Right, right. That was a really nice surprise. Yeah. So that was sort of beautiful. Like, I was like, wow, what a, and she's just such a grateful soul. And, you know, you don't think of that as yuck, yuck, you know? <laughs> Does she seem like she's happy? I think so. Yeah. She, it was interesting. She, she said something. She passed on something that I think a lot of, well, I think a lot of lawyers could take to heart. I know I could take to heart. Um, she was talking about working for uh, Gary Shandling when he had his show, the oh, Larry Sanders yeah. show on HBO. Yeah. And she was talking about the culture that he created. And he told her at one point, you have to put limits on this because basically the people who are, who you're working with above you, below you, whatever, they'll be happy to take as much as you'll give. It's completely up to you to set limits. Right. Because otherwise you're going to have a lousy life. Yeah. They're not going to do that for you. You really are going to be in charge of that. And it's funny because that was cast in, the, you know, he's a, he's a comedy star with his own show and everything like that. But then later on, she uses that when her own show comes up. It becomes very clear that they wanted her to make some changes where she said, you know, I could do that. She said, but then I'd be like a repulsive human being to work with and to be and the quality would suffer. And I think that's a good insight for people to have. You have to prioritize your own happiness beyond yeah. just like give me more money, but just sort of, you know, can I handle that? Right. And is that within my bandwidth? Is that going to allow me to be a decent human being? And I feel like that's not something that's necessarily prioritized. So I'm guessing if she follows that advice, she's probably a pretty happy person. Yeah. I always got the sense with her, I, I could never quite tell. Like she's, she, there seems to be kind of an underlying uh, sadness. And I didn't know if she went into that in the book at all, if she's. Um... Oh, she did. No, I mean, she did. It, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the title of the book is The Bad Wetter, yeah. which sounds really funny. But she tells the story. She was like wetting her bed well into like high school, like right, right up into high school or something like that, um, because she had some sort of condition, the shame that she had from that. And then she also talks about going into this very severe clinical depression, like she missed a year of school just to stay at home and basically be in bed. Mm. So she's someone who's really earned her insights, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was it was neat to know that because I didn't know. I, I didn't know if she was just wink-wink heart jokes and stuff. I mean, I, and I love wink-wink heart jokes, so to do it well is great, but it's also nice to know it comes from somebody with a soul. It's funny because, like, when I – I don't like to read a lot of books by people who I like. Like, mm. I don't – most of the time I don't want to read – you know, <laughs> not, not by writers. Of course, I'll want to read books by writers I like, but – Right. Um, you know, like I don't want to read celebrity memoirs, yeah, celebrity, yeah. you know, cause I'm just like, Oh God, I don't want to find out that this lovely actor or actress is just a complete asshole or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, Oh really? Oh nice. Oh, you're awful. I didn't know that. Yeah. Whereas, so it was kind of nice to do the reverse to find out someone who I liked on stage, you know, the closer you got, it was like, wow, she's even better up close. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the next one. This is an author sure. that I only know from the titles, only because you mentioned him. And the titles that I found, his name is Martin Troost. And his. Oh, J. Martin Troost. J. Martin Troost. J. Martin Troost. Yeah. And, and the, the titles are The Sex Lives of Cannibals, Headhunters on My Doorstep, and Getting Stoned with Savages. Yes. He also wrote Lost on Planet China. Lost yes, on Planet he's a China. Travel writer. So he's a travel writer, he's Dutch-American, and he sounds like he is having a wild journey. Yeah, he's wonderful. I mean, he's just wonderful. He's almost like a, he's like a younger Bill Bryson. Oh, right. A younger, more, like slightly more raunchy, but not really raunchy Bill mm -hmm. Bryson. He's very interested in each of these places. Like he went, first he went to, um, I think, Carabas, which is like an island in the Pacific. And then he goes back out to the Pacific again. And then, then he wrote a book about China. And then he went out to the Pacific again. And his, his books are, are fantastic. He'll walk into, he'll walk cold into a culture that he knows zilch about. Mm. I mean, I'm, I know there's research that goes behind it before he arrives, but not, it's not like he's got some sort of internal close tie. Right. And he'll just pull you in. Yeah. Like he's an amazing observer and he's funny and he's decent and he's interested in interesting things. There's certain travel writers where I just could care less, you know, oh, right. oh yeah. so lovely. 
you see this time of year, the tulips are in bloom, and magnificent thing that it, he doesn't care about that. He's really interested in what it's like to live there. Yeah. And he's not embarrassed about having a Western sensibility, you know, sort of the squeamishness about certain things and, you know, the stupidity of other things. And it, it's really brilliant. I, especially his book, Lost on Planet China. He went to China. He doesn't even know Chinese. He just goes. Right. And he goes to all these different places in China. And he really absorbed a tremendous amount. I mean, and he's just insightful and funny and, I mean, just a, a terrific writer. And he's just amazing. Hmm. Okay. Well, I will check them out. Now, I would have a question here, which I am not even going to stoop to ask, which is, you know, some kind of... Uh, tying it back to your book and asking if you visiting any of these book clubs uh, was, was similar to any of, the, <laughs> any of these things. Let's no. not even go there. Let's not even go there. Let, not that, it's, not, it's not even comparable. <laughs> now, maybe we will get there with the next book, which is Simon Brett's A Shock to the System, which is another book I haven't oh, read. Brilliant book. But the review of it says... Quote, who would have thought murder could replace a good education and hard work as the keys to corporate success and upward mobility? End quote. So yeah. it sounds like we're looking at some some striving, some people who are willing to go outside the law in order to get what they want. Yes. That's a brilliant book. They made a movie of it. Oh, God, more than, I think it's like 30 years ago. They made a movie of it, mm. a movie of it with um, Michael Caine. And the book is brilliant i think they finally put it back on kindle like it was out of print for a while and then they put it back on kindle ah. simon brett usually he's he's a british he's a he's a big mystery writer in britain mm -hmm. and most of the time he relies on wonderful comedic sort of sleuth to do stuff like he's got this great failed actor sleuth who is constantly getting caught up in murder mysteries and he's got like this little lady named sleuth named mrs pargeter and he's got these wonderful two women the feathering mysteries that are, are great but Shock of the System was a standalone book, and it's one of the, I mean, it's really one of the best books I've ever read. Mm. It's about this man, Graham Marshall, who did everything right. Mm -hmm. He went to the right, he went to, you know, to the right university. He, you know, got a, back, a prestigious background, then he went to a prestigious company, and he just patiently worked his way up the corporate ladder. Mm. and was very respectable. He married the right woman. He did everything right. Mm -hmm. And he sort of traps himself because he sort of makes himself the prime candidate for this one particular job, but none others. And then when he fails to achieve that single job, he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm stuck. Mm -hmm. He becomes, he realizes, oh my gosh, I so thoroughly aligned myself with the old sort of the old guard within this company that when the new guard comes in, I've made it myself incredibly easy to just push out. Mm. And in a fit of pique, after he finds this out, he kills a homeless man. He pushes him off a bridge. It's not like premeditated at all. It's just like the old man is begging him. And what provokes him to kill the old man and shove him off a bridge is the man says, oh, please, give us give us some money. He goes, I can tell. I've made my life a mess out of my life, but I can tell looking in your eyes that you're a success. And that's what makes him kill him. Mm -hmm. And so it's got, it's got a very strong comedic bent. And... Initially, he has that reaction of just of terror when he finds out that when he's killed this guy, like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to be caught. I feel, I feel terrible about it. And then once he sort of calms down and realizes he's going to get away with it, he begins to realize, wow, he's actually fine with the fact that he killed this guy. He doesn't have any guilt. He doesn't want to get caught, but he doesn't have any guilt. Yeah. And he realizes that he's mistaken himself for being moral because so many of the hallmarks of success are the same as being outwardly looks like morality. Right. You know, I got the wife, status symbol. I got the great job, status symbol. I'm hardworking and pay my taxes, status symbol. And he realizes, wow, what really drove me wasn't to be good. What really drove me was to keep succeeding. And mm. so he starts using murder as the way to climb the corporate ladder. He gets rid of his rivals that way. It's brilliant. I mean, it's just brilliant. And it's got sort of a, a very funny edge to it. It's funny because like a lot of people, I guess you could compare it to like Brett Ellis's American Psycho, but mm -hmm. I found Shock to the System way more compelling because with American Psycho, it's just someone who's been completely amoral all of his life, knows right. it, goes for what he wants. He's a monster. This guy is a monster too. It's just he didn't know it. He didn't right. know that that was in him. For him, it was hugely liberating to realize, oh my gosh, like I'm not going to kill for killing's sake. I'm not like that, but I can kill without compunction if you get in my way. I want to succeed. Uh, is he? Uh, where's the reader in this? Are you, are you just appalled by him? Or are you kind of rooting for him? Do you find yourself? It's it's really hard. He's charismatic. 
Simon Brett is so charismatic. His, his, he's not, look, he's not a charismatic figure. You don't think, wow, what a, what a badass living out my fantasy. It's more, he's so beaten down. Imagine if the guy in American Beauty with that wonderful sort of snarky dialogue, imagine if instead his, instead of getting in shape and fantasizing about cheerleaders, imagine if his self-empowerment moment came, wow, I could just kill that wife. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Except he's doing funny asides to the camera. I mean, and that's what it's like. And, he talks, he even has children. He doesn't kill his children, but he realizes suddenly that he really feels nothing for them. You know, like, and the, the prose is so beautiful because it's not, it's not told from first person. It's, it's told from, from, he's definitely the point of view, but it's not, it's not in his head. Right. And, um, you know, it's not, I did this, I did that, but it's just some of the lines, you know, he's got these two teenagers who are just endlessly whining. I want this, I want that. Da, da, da. And they don't clearly just view him as a human cash machine. And he looks at them and at one point he says, there's, there's a line where, where like the author says something like, you know, Emma and Charles have lost the charm that smallness had imparted. And I was just like, <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, it's just so biting and so perfect. <laughs> it sounds like, uh, and, and again, I haven't read it at all, but it, it reminds me a little bit of um, just listening to you talk about it. It reminds me of the experience I had when I read Patricia Highsmith's books, where I would yeah. feel kind of disoriented by who I was by where I stood in t in terms of the main character and what I was seeing and it it jolted me out of my chair as a reader. Yeah, I mean I would say this is a lot like Highsmith the only difference is Brett is funnier. Mm. I mean Highsmith is it's it's dark. This is yeah. Brett is usually not so dark. He yeah, Simon Brett is not usually dark, but he's yeah. always funny, but he's not usually this dark. This was dark and it was just so funny i mean it, yeah you feel so complicit because you're just reading along with him and you're like oh my god yeah no that's right <laughs> right oh boy that sounds great that sounds like a good book club book actually all yeah, of these it do it's wonderful all of these uh yeah, all four I of your so. books seem like so. uh they'd be good ones for a book club okay so you also listed we're getting a little short on time but you had also listed some films and some television shows i was wondering do you want to just pick one and we could talk about it Sure, I, I forget what I listed. Okay, what, what did I list? So that yeah, I'll, good to you. I'll do this for the listeners. You had chosen Mr. Skeffington with Betty Davis, uh, Thelma oh, and Louise. Skeffington. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, is it Mrs. or Mister? I mean, she's the it's Mrs. Mrs. Skeffington. Okay, because yes, it's Mrs. Skeffington. Yeah, I think I saw. Might have been a different version. It was Mister. Maybe the play was Mister. In any oh, case, could be. no. This is this is a movie with Betty Davis. Uh, and then Thelma and Louise, The Music Man, Arrested Development, the television series, and Bob's Burgers. I think I'd like to talk about Mrs. Steffington just because it's okay. the closest to the book, I yep. think. Um, and I even have, like, one of the characters is a big Betty Davis fan. Oh, Mrs. Yeah. Steffington is wild because, to me, it was prophetic. It was this movie. <laughs> prophetic. <laughs> It was, it was, because it was written back in the, it was, I think it was back in the 30s or 40s, Yeah. and it was one of these great Betty Davis movies. Like, at this point, she's uh, middle-aged, yeah. but she hasn't quite gone to see, didn't admitted it. And she plays that so well. Yes, and she's supposed to be a great beauty. I mean, so she goes around just a great beauty. And so she's poor, and so she marries a Jewish guy, played by Claude Rains. Claude yeah. Rains is a Jew, is one of the funniest <laughs> things I've ever seen. I'm sorry, I'm Jewish, and it was just, there's a... One of the funniest scenes I think I've ever seen ever was Claude Rains talking to his daughter and like he's explaining, I'm afraid I have to go to, to Europe. And of course, they all did that sort of fake British accent that they did in the 40s. Like, I'm afraid I have to go to Europe and I must be careful. And the daughter says, why, father, why must you be careful? Says, well, Fanny, I'm afraid to admit that I'm, I'm Jewish. And she goes, Jewish? <laughs> Anyway, that's not the part that's so to do with the book, but but they had to see what what kicked me with the book was Mrs. Skeffington. She marries him. She's a great beauty, and he ages. She doesn't, mm. and everyone is amazed. So she's got young. She's got like a she's got a young lover and everything like that, all the way into her at that point. The you know the old old feeble age of like forty or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly. She gets struck with some disease. I forget the disease, but it finally basically makes her age her, to her proper biological age. Mm -hmm. And everyone sort of recoils in horror because now Mrs. Skeffington has sort of lost her Tom Cruisean avoidance of time. Yeah, yeah. 
and people recoil in horror and and then her husband comes back from the holocaust miraculously survived and <laughs> and not really lost any weight and he's blind <laughs> which was perfect now he's perfect you'll always be beautiful to me fatter uh, i've never seen you you know because of course now he's blind and he doesn't know that she's not pretty anymore i always remember you as perfect you know that right. kind of thing but it was just what was crazy in that movie and i thought honest was this is a woman who, in her 20s, she nets her man, and then through her 30s and 40s, she keeps her power because of the fact that she does not age. Yeah, right. And this is back in the 40s, before like great plastic surgery. They had some plastic surgery, but they didn't have anything close to the hardware we've got now. And her total loss of status as soon as the looks are gone. And that definitely helps you get into the headset of, of what a lot of women go through, because now... We have we could all technically be Mrs. Skeffington if we want to. Yeah. You know, if we're willing to check out a, put out enough money, you could, you know, have your face wired up and your skin pulled back and right. all kinds of heroic efforts to stay twenty five forever. In the movie there's sort of an idea that when it's funny because in in the movie when she doesn't age, it's not presented as being strange. It's just sort of marvelous. And then when she finally does age, that's when they finally go, Now that's grotesque. Right. And right, I so you see both sides. <laughs> I heard something the other day. I'm not a big fan of the Trumps, but I heard uh, something that uh, Melania Trump said, Melania Trump said, where somebody had asked her, would you be married to him if uh, he wasn't rich? And she said, do you think he'd be married to me if I wasn't beautiful? And I just thought, <laughs> okay, you know, like let's let's get it out there. That's yeah, it's like, like as harsh transactional as you can go. Yeah, yeah. it is. No, I mean, I, I didn't admire it, but I admired her candor. And you know, I know for a lot of people, that is a big part of the equation. Yeah, is the beauty, and that's the asset, or just like wealth might be, or I don't know, you know, physique, muscular yeah, physique, no, I mean, or. It's funny because you expect that, you know, as between men and women. Like, okay, in the, in the sexual marketplace, of course, it's better to be beautiful. Mm-hmm. I guess what I didn't realize until I got <laughs> until I got older and less beautiful, I didn't realize that <laughs> how much it plays into everything else. It plays into yeah. so much at work. You get that sort of enfant terrible vibe if you're working late hours and you look fantastic. You also get it with other women, and a lot of the book is sort of concerned with that because you see a lot of the worry for these women is, you know, looking good for each other. Mm-hmm. Because if you slip, if they smell your weakness, you're not in the same peer group anymore. Yeah. And I definitely see that. I know a lot of women who will get way more dressed up to see their girlfriends than they will put their husbands. Right. Like, way more. You know, a husband, you're like, you're showing up in the T-shirt and, you know, the retainer in your mouth. Hi, honey. <laughs> Yeah. Your girlfriends, you get all done up. You don't want to make sure that they know you haven't let yourself go. Yeah. Um, And that is weird. It's strange because either I wasn't as honest with myself about it when I was younger or I honestly just didn't realize it. I I don't know. I don't know which is right. But, you know, we're so used to like in high school, it's easy to talk about one another as good looking or not good looking. Yeah. You know, I'm kind of reminded of this. Um of the Steve Martin line where I think it was in his memoir and he he was talking about the people that he was with in the sixties and everything. And he says, were we good looking? Then he said, we were in our twenties. Yeah. Like there is this (laughs) thing where young people are just universally better looking. Yeah. You know, I kind of laughed to think about when I was 18 thinking that some people were good looking or not good looking. And now it's kind of like all young people just look so marvelous. They look so fresh faced and it's just a fact of age, but at the on the other hand, some people uh, show the age more and at different times, and and it does seem to to be equated in our minds with a kind of character failing. Oh yeah, no, I mean, look, I've got kids. Oh, I've got so many kids. I've got a six year old, a nine year old, an eleven year old, and a thirteen year old. Okay, mm. my kids they like to do theater, and so they'll put on tons of glop on their faces, which instantly makes them look older. And last well, do I look better, Mom? And I'm like, honey, you look beautiful, but why would you do that? The whole reason for that makeup is to make people look younger, like you. Yeah. <laughs> You're going the wrong way. You're going the wrong way. 
right. <laughs> you want to look older, we're all like, you know, we're all trying to crawl back in the womb. You're going the wrong way. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, it was just, it's just, it's bizarre. They don't, they don't see it. I mean, it's funny because I've seen people who don't, I've, I've talked to people who don't have, who, where they don't have children and they'll talk about someone having perfect skin and, or some friend having perfect skin and they'll talk and they'll talk and they'll talk and I'll be like, I can show you perfect skin in two seconds. Go down to the playground. Mm. <laughs> you don't have a mark on them. Yeah. You know, they're yeah. perfect. And, you know, I had a line in the book that was something like, you know, these women made heroic efforts to look younger, but next to a really young woman, they look like wax fruit next to a fresh peach, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like it's not going the other way. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really hard to let go of. I mean, there's a few women in Hollywood where they age really well, and people will say, isn't that great how natural she's allowing herself to be? Right. And I'll look at those women who've aged super well, and you're like, okay, that woman has cheekbones that stick out for days. Yeah, Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> Audrey Hepburn still looked pretty good. Yeah, I mean, like Meryl Streep, she looked, she's looking pretty old. She's looking pretty great for, for an older lady, but, I mean, she's got amazing cheekbones. It's like, oh, my yeah. gosh, you know? Someone who was who made their whole living off of being cute, it would be really hard. But with right. the, So I'm not surprised in that in actresses, but just the fact that, that we're doing it, that, like, people in law firms are doing it. You see it, wow. I mean, there's just a huge effort. I didn't know what it was at first. When I was young and I was, you know, and I had no idea what such things were, I'd see people with facelifts, and I wouldn't think facelift. I would just think, Wow, their face is so shiny and and <laughs> taut. Like you know, I was like, did they do some kind of like you know Pilates to the face? <laughs> Just like it was so firm. Right. I didn't know what it, I didn't know what I was looking at. You know, um, and now it seems to be going over to guys because there's. I talked to some hairdressers in La Jolla, and they told me they have to be so careful how they cut the hairline on men because there's all these men with like all these facelifts and no more sharp scarring. Oh, <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. You know, it it is a very human thing. I I remember my grandmother when she was, I guess, sort of in her mid-80s, and she was visited by a friend who was 92 or something. And and I remember, you know, you're always a little anxious when someone like that is coming over because you don't know, is this someone who's going to need a lot of help or what is the experience going to be like? And this woman came over and she was so sharp and so funny she had a perfect memory she was witty and it just kind of blew me away of how wonderful it was and you know to see someone at that age who had their faculties about them and after she left i said to my grandmother like oh wasn't it so great you know she was doing so well and my grandmother said yeah she walks with a cane now <laughs> it was like <laughs> like for her, it was just this marker of like my grandmother was my grandmother probably needed a cane too, but she was really holding off on it. She didn't want to give in to that. It it was like looking at these markers of how well is this other person holding up and how well am I doing by comparison. Yeah. And I think the version of that for people probably in their thirties and forties and fifties is you know, wrinkles and, and balding and weight gain and, and drooping uh, skin and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, exactly. And in, But now we can actually remove some of the markers, and that's, that's bizarre. Yeah. Because I see it. I see it all around me. It's wild. I remember when I first arrived in La Jolla, one of the most shocking things I had seen when I first arrived here was I went to a, I went to a food court. I wasn't in a ritzy place. <laughs> and I saw a woman sitting eating, and I... I I couldn't help it. I kept, I kept looking, you know, I, 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 you know, I tried to be surreptitious about it, but I looked at her. her she had wrinkles, but the wrinkles were horizontal. Hmm. I'd never seen that before. Like a window valence. Like it just looked like this drape of skin going yeah. horizontally. And it took me a second to figure it out. What is going on? And then I realized, Oh my God, she had a facelift. And then, you know, the skin slackens again and she couldn't afford to tuck it back in. That's why uh... you have to, why you see people looking so grotesque because you have to keep tucking. It doesn't stay that way. You have to keep tucking, tucking, tucking. Uh, and I just remember looking at that going, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. So then maybe you go through a you divorce know? or you, you lose a job or you hit some hard times and then you lose the ability to maintain the maintenance. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, you know, I had some other questions for you, but we're kind of out of time here. But also, I think these were this this last part here was a good discussion. It kind of ties in with some themes of your book. It gives people a sense of 
some of the ideas that you've been wrestling with a little bit and that you've injected into what is also a very funny novel and a very uh, fast-paced read. And a, the book is called Crimes Against a Book Club, available now at bookstores yes, yes, and yes. Amazon. And the author is Kathy Cooperman. Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today on the History of Literature. Thank you for having me, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Kathy Cooperman for joining me. So much fun. Her book is called Crimes Against a Book Club, and I don't think you'll find a better book for the beach this summer or for your armchair during any season or at night in bed. It works there, too, at no extra charge. If you enjoy the history of literature and would like to help us out, please visit us at patreon.com slash literature, where you can sign up for a simple and small donation to support the show. There are all levels of support available. We thank you in advance for your generosity and kindness. Generosity, kindness, compassion. Boy, we need more of that, don't we? There are a lot of problems in the world, my friends, and they can only be addressed by people staying engaged and staying in the fight. Keep your hopes up and keep your mind active and alert and we will all get through this together. I am optimistic that we can and I'm very thankful that you are here with me on this journey. We'll have a look at the Heart of Darkness soon and Sherlock Holmes and another round of Literature Goes to the Movies, more Oscar Wilde. So please subscribe and tell all your friends. These are shows you won't want to miss. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.